0: If you look at your calendar, you'll see that um, where we're kind of at. We have um, spent the whole first part of the year just talking about discipline one, the heart. Um, The way that we've done that is we've done that by um, doing a couple of surveys of Scripture first, just trying to walk through the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible to get some ideas about what, what does God think throughout Scripture about the heart of man. Um, what's his intent with the heart of man? And um, wanted to just see that. Then we then we dove into Hebrews 4, remember? And we really dug down deep into one passage uh, to look at what God is saying there about the, the Word of God and, and the heart. Um, and then we've transitioned now into um, Discipline 2 on the home, and we started our last time together with a, with a survey, again, through the Bible, going from the, the very beginning all the way to the end, um, to so just try to get a, a sense what what's on God's mind, what's in God's heart concerning the household relationships. What's it been like from the very beginning, all the way to where we are today in Christ and the gospel? And so um, now what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go down deep into one passage and so I think uh, these kinds of things are good for us to do it's good for us to uh, have a survey of scripture and kind of uh, you know fly over at 30,000 feet and and get a survey of the whole land and then it's good to go down deep into one passage and mine it for all that it's worth and uh, so that's what we're doing and then eventually here we're going to do one more we're going to drill down into one other passage next time together in December we're going to We're going to add one that I haven't done yet with Build, um, but I really have wanted to. Um, We're going to look at Titus chapter 2. And I actually want to have us take a look at what God says about what women, our wives, are supposed to be focused on. We talk a lot about us and, and what our role is and who we are and who we must be and what we must do. Um, but one of the ways you can shepherd your household well, and especially your wife if you're married, or if you want to be married someday, you need to know how to direct your wife. And the only way you're going to direct your wife well is if you know what God's design for your wife is. And so we're going to look at Titus 2 and uh, dig in there and see what God says about our wives, and that will help you then be able to shepherd a, your wife, uh, your desire someday to have a wife. I wish I would have thought more about these things before I ever got married. Um, and I'll tell you, those of you guys, I hope you don't feel like, you know, as a single guy, I hope you don't feel like, you know, a lot of times they're just are just talking about marriage or just talking about wives, and that's just not what God has me. Um, I hope you won't feel like, you know, we're, we're leapfrogging over you and, and ignoring where you're at. I'm telling you guys, if any, you ask any guy here who is married what he could have used more of when he was single. And you will not find a man who will say, you know what, I, I got plenty on wives and husbands before. I, in fact, I had too much. And I wish I would have been addressed more just as a single man. Nobody will say that to you. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're uh, less than two months away from a wedding. Right, Zach? Yep. Or if you're less than two decades away from a wedding. You need; these are good things for us to focus on. So, let's turn our notebooks over to the back. I want you to be thinking about this again and and, uh, review this. I want you to think this morning. um, I want you to think about your next meeting that you're going to have with somebody in the body. Maybe, maybe you're going to get together with another guy. You're going to have some coffee. You're going to go get breakfast. You're going to have lunch. I want you to think about what would be a a, what would be a profitable use of your time and your conversation. What what should you talk about? Well, you should talk about the heart, your His heart, your heart, and in particular, not just the condition of your heart, but what God's intent and design for your heart is—that you would draw near in the heart to God, and He has revealed Himself primarily, specifically, most clearly in Scripture. And so something that would be very worthwhile for you to talk with that man about, something that would be very pleasing to God for you to talk about, would be how are you doing in, in terms of drawing near to God in your, with your heart? How is the Word of God rubbing up against your heart and your heart rubbing up against the Word of God so that you might know God? Um, talking about that would be a great thing for two men to talk about. Um, Something else that would be great for you to talk about would then be talked about now. how's it going in your, in your household. How's it going with the relationships that you have next to you and around you in your home. Um, and then you can begin to talk about how what kind of an impact, if, if any, is being made on those relationships there as you draw near to God's word. Don't forget to grab a couple of the worksheets back there. In fact, there's one there for you. Thanks, guys. Um, so you want to be focusing on household relationships. Um, you can then turn and, and, and start talking about now people that you're impacting outside of your home. In church or outside of church at work or in the neighborhood or whatever. How's that going? Because that's important too. Because we're not called in Christ to merely just personally live holy before him and not think of others. We're not just merely called to live holy lives and impact the lives of those that we live with. But we're in this world and Christ is coming back and he is out to expand his gospel across this globe through the church. So now how are you engaging in lives? How are you engaging in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the mission of Jesus Christ? What else could you talk about that would be more important as men together? Um, those are the first three disciplines of build. Those are the kinds of things that if men at Grace Bible Church are talking about these things, concerned about these things, oriented towards these things, centered on these things. The men of this church just fall to this as if this is the man's center of gravity, these kinds of disciplines. This is a church that is strong on the man's side, and it'll be strong in the home. And our wives will be better women because of us. And the single gals in the church will be better A single women in the church. I remember um, a couple years ago, when we were talking about um, I was talking with one of the single gals in the church and um, she was telling me that what she thought was the fruit of build in the lives of men in the church so she's a single gal and you might think that a single gal might say I don't see a connection but she as a single gal in the church felt and could could tell she actually said that she felt safer that she felt that she was well taken care of that there was um, that she was covered because the men of the church were thinking about the right kinds of things she enjoyed being in singles ministry where, where the guys were because they were thinking of these kinds of things it was a part of the fiber of what in the life of what guys were thinking and so there was a benefit even on the single gals in the church and that's huge that's what we really want to look after the whole church benefits from this don't forget to get a handout back there guys as you come in Um <clears throat> so, please, you know, know that this doesn't just make an, a, a personal impact on you. Again, this is all about strengthening the local church. Because the local church is what God's Son bled and died for to form. Not just to redeem you, but to form a body. And this body is what he wants to put on display in the world. His wisdom is seen through the local church. Ephesians 3. Ephesians um, 3. So we're thinking about you. you got to be who you must be in Christ. We're also thinking about the church. We're thinking about the families. We're thinking about a lot of things. We're thinking about a lot of relationships. We're thinking about people outside of the church who have not yet even heard the gospel. What kind of a man do they need to hear it from? What kind of a man do they need to see and understand this gospel from? A man like you living this way. Okay. Discipline four is on the qualifications. Um, you'll we'll, we'll be getting to that at the next uh, semester together, looking at First uh, Timothy three and Acts chapter six about um, uh, just who are these deacons in the church. We'll give you a tool that will help you to begin to prayerfully work through the qualifications for deacons, so that you can be praying that God would work in you in such a way that you would be a qualified man to be able to serve in the church um, in, in, at that capacity. Um, then we'll talk about discipline five. Uh, How we handle the Word of God. Um, The whole last three sections of um, build at the end of the year, we're trying to finish strong on three different, just kind of really prepping you for H3, if that's where God is going to lead you next after this. Um, We want to have you uh, really be on the same page with the way that the elders believe the Word of God should be handled here. Um, What's the right way for us to interpret Scripture? What's the right way for us to view the Old Testament? What's the right way for us to view the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament? How should we view Mosaic Law as Christians? These are really important things because these things intersect your life in ways that, um, and in people's lives out there, all you got to do is get in a conversation with somebody about Mosaic Law, and I tell you, you will enter into fuzzy land. Because people like, what? I don't know what to do. People feel guilty. Should I, you know, should, is, are we under the Sabbath? I mean... What do we, oh, you, you can come and you can comfort people by showing them here's how the word of God is held together here's where there's great continuity from the beginning to the end here's where God never changes in Jesus Christ here's where things have changed because of Jesus Christ okay you need to have good answers for these things and we want to begin to equip you in those kinds of uh, basic things so lastly discipline 6 You're not at um, any other church. You're at Grace Bible Church. And so you need to understand what this church has set in its sights, what what its vision is, and what its gospel purpose is. And so that you can uh, make sure that you uh, are in agreement, that you uh, are engaged with this, that you're able to help draw other people who are maybe newer to the church into this biblical vision and gospel purpose um, at, at Grace Bible Church. So... That would be an ideal man at Grace Bible Church who is fixed on these things. We want all of the men, any man who would call this church his home, who loves Jesus Christ, who's been transformed by the gospel, we, that man must know these things and have his life ordered around these things. Um, and in God's church, it is a strong church. It should be the kind of church that God wants it to be. Um, If we don't focus on these things, if we don't create a platform, an arena for men and call men to it and say, men, let's get on this platform to engage with these things. If we don't do that, this kind of stuff doesn't happen on its own. You have to be intentional. Um, You know this with your own life. Do nothing and watch what happens to your life. See if you become just by accident a godly man. You don't. You know this doesn't happen for you personally. You have to what? You've got to drag your sorry carcass to a place where you can be exposed to God's Word. You've got to put yourself in front of God's Word where it can speak to you and you can know how you should approach God through Jesus Christ and His words. You discipline yourself for that, and your life will change. If you don't discipline yourself for that, nothing will change. And if we don't discipline it create an opportunity for men to come together to be exposed to these things, these things won't happen in the church. Leadership development does not happen on its own. You don't just wake up one day and find that, oh, wow, these leaders we've got. No, you just like a, a, a farmer in a soil, the crop doesn't come up. He doesn't wake up one day and go, where did that come from? What a surprise. No, he knows where it came from. He labored like crazy. He, he sweat blood to make that happen. He sacrificed sleep to make that happen. And now here it is. God blessed it, and here it is. That's what we want. That's what we're aiming for. And you guys get to be a part of that. Um, So let's dig in deep to God's Word this morning. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 6. Before we look at God's Word, though, we should do what? We need to pray. Because we need His help. These are spiritual things in God's Word. And um, we need to be... Men who are relying on the Spirit of God to understand them. Um, I hope that you'll catch yourself as you come to God's Word, and you just open. You're sleepy in the morning, and you're rubbing the sleep out of your eyes, and you open your Bible, and you just start reading. I hope you catch yourself and go, "Whoa! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute. What am I doing? Oh, yeah! I need to pray." And uh, we'll do that together as as we look at God's Word this morning. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this great opportunity this morning to put our lives together. Um, The primary reason, Lord, that we are sitting here together even thinking about these things is your son, Jesus Christ, and your grace towards sinners in him. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That when we were dead, you, in love, your great kindness, and in your grace, you united us to your son. You made us alive together with Christ. That is what primarily is underneath each one of us and that has slanted us to fall together to this point this morning. And we're grateful. We just want to acknowledge that we know that this is because of Jesus Christ, because of your love for us in him, that we are here. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to align our lives together um, around these biblical, spiritual, leadership disciplines that we would truly be men who are concerned to shepherd our hearts with your Word, so that we might know you and love you. Pray that our household relationships would be um, flooded by a heart for God in in our own lives. Pray, Lord, that we would make a a deep impact on those in the body of Christ at grace and even outside the body of Christ. And, um, Lord, make us qualified men Help us to labor in this body the way that you desire us to. And now, God, as we look at Deuteronomy 6, we're going to jump back into the wilderness and we get a glimpse into watching how you, the God of Moses and the God of Israel, revealed yourself to them, what your heart's intent was for them. And we want to watch what you were like with these people that you called to yourself before you ever called us to you. We want we want to see what you're like. We want to see how you dealt with them. But because you've given us so much more revelation even after Deuteronomy, Lord, we want to be thoughtful about what you have revealed beyond Deuteronomy to us in the New Testament also. Help us to put our Bibles together well this morning as we look at it. And help us to be careful as we study. But God, if we do all of this and we miss seeing you, the kind of God that you are, Lord, we will have a half-empty, at best, maybe hollow time in your word. And we do not want that. So please, draw near to us, Lord. We are drawing near to you by your grace and through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Deuteronomy 6 i got a summary there for you. Um, I have several different quotes for you to take a look at um, this morning that will just kind of help you think about what Deuteronomy is saying. Um, let's talk about the whole idea of what's going on with the book of Deuteronomy. It's, a, it's very much a covenantal setting. Now, the word covenant... Uh, for us today is not something that we are very familiar with. It doesn't, that's not a word that comes out in our daily living and so it can seem like a foreign idea. Maybe one that doesn't intersect with my life very tangibly. But um, it has everything to do with your life in Christ. Because God is a covenant making God. And He is a covenant keeping God. He is a covenant fulfilling God. And He being the covenant making and keeping God, he is the one who has made a covenant with this people called Israel. And so the Mosaic covenant here portrays God as the great king who entered into a treaty or a covenant with Israel so that he became their God and they became his people. That's what's going on here in the book of Deuteronomy. I have an outline for you that just kind of lets you see it through this lens of the covenantal theme Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1 is about the covenant mediator. It's about Moses and who he is. Um, The rest of chapter 1 through chapter 4 is about the covenant history. It's rehearsed. uh, What God has done, this covenant making and keeping God has done with Israel. And then chapter 5 through chapter 26 is about the covenant life. Here's what a, a life that's lived under this covenant looks like. And that's where we find our passage today sitting in that section 27 chapter 27 through chapter 30 covenant sanctions are given there's the covenant ratification there's the giving of blessings and curses if you're going to abide by the words that God gives Israel there's blessing and if you don't there's curse and then the covenant continuity moves on through the end of the, the book so what I want us to look at this morning is primarily Deuteronomy 6 we're going to focus mostly on verses 4 down through verse 9. Let's read um, verses 1 down through verse 9. You can follow along as I read. Now, this is the covenant. Or I'm sorry, the covenant. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson. See, he's thinking of uh, more than just one generation. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it so that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then our verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today, they shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All right, let's talk about the blazing center. I'll start with an illustration here that, that, to, that I think, at least for me, in my mind, as, as I look at what's going on here, especially in Deuteronomy 6. Um, It helps me understand what's going on. Um, It's that time of year where, uh, at least at the Maxwell house, probably at yours too, you've turned the furnace on, maybe in the mornings, uh, because it's a little cold. Um, I'm a okay with the cold, but I have everybody else in my house who is not. So the furnace is on, in the mornings anyway. And this is probably the case in your house too, but um, the rooms that are nearest, the vents that are nearest the furnace, what what about those rooms? (laughs) They're, They're the hottest. Right? And for whatever reason, they put the laundry room right next to the furnace and where the AC comes out. So that room is always the coldest, and my bedroom is the furthest away. What is that? I want to go sleep in the laundry room. That's another story. All right, so the rooms that are uh, and the vents that are nearest to the blazing furnace, that's where the hottest air is, right? The further the vents are away from the blazing furnace, the colder the room. Is. <clears throat> and I think that's illustrative of what Moses is trying to get across to Israel, spiritually speaking. Okay? The closer that Israel will draw near to God and not forget Him, the warmer their affection for Him will be. The, their love for Him will be hot. Okay? Israel must stay close to her blazing center, to her furnace, who is God. And so this is a call to Israel to not drift from God because they're going to become cold toward him if they do. Now, verse 4 is called the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for hear. So hear, O Israel, is just Shema Israel. Hear, Israel. And the word hear means, it includes the intent of, To also not just listen with your ears, but it includes the idea of the intent to place your life under those words and obey. So order all of the rest of your life under the words of this one who is your your blazing center, God. This is how the whole call begins from Moses to Israel. You can see what Merrill says um, in his commentary. He says, to hear in Hebrew lexicography is tantamount to obey. That's what's being said here. Obey Israel. But it requires you to hear. Obey. Especially in covenant contexts such as this. That is, to hear God without putting into effect the command is really in God's mind not to hear Him at all. And you would say this about your kids. If you gave to your kid a command and you said, did you hear me? Yeah. And then they go off and do something different. They didn't hear you. They didn't hear you the way that you intended them to hear you. And so this is the hearing with the intent to obey. And this, by the way, you can't forget where this sits in light of the rest of the Pentateuch. Okay? This sits in the light of all that God has already done for Israel. And the covenant that he has already made with them at the mountain. Because God has redeemed them from Egypt with a, with a strong hand and because God has already made a covenant with them in the wilderness, obey me. Because I redeemed you, because I met with you and I entered into a covenant with you, listen to me with the intent to obey. you see? Where does the hearing and the obeying fit? <clears throat> it follows after his gracious redemption of Israel from Egypt. Now, you have to understand the, redeem- the redemption he did, the redeeming them out of Egypt, is not uh, does not mean that everybody who came out of Egypt was saved. But it was still what he called redemption. And it is still by grace that he did it. You're going to see that. It is completely by grace that God did this with Israel. But because of all of this, what he has done, the foundation they are on, as he says, hear me and obey me, What's underneath them already that even allows him to stand and say that is grace, his grace toward Israel. Okay, so to hear here is is to listen closely for the purpose of obedience, and they must become determined to know what God has said to them in order to conform their beliefs and their behavior accordingly. Um, this is not any different. Um, different than you can write down James one. 23 to 25 Let, I'll read it for you so you, you know this. Um, Jesus has this for us in our covenant with him. He has laid out a covenant of grace towards us in Genesis, uh, James 1:23 he says uh, James says to us, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, which law are you talking about? Oh, the law of liberty. That's the one that's in Christ. And abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. You see, that's the church's version of here with the intent to obey. Israel's version is Deuteronomy 6. Here, with the intent to obey. A God of grace paving a a big platform to stand on for Israel for that. God, through his son Jesus Christ, paving a big platform of grace in the new covenant, and we stand on it, and we better not hear without doing. See, this is where God has not changed in the Bible. This is how your Bible is the same from beginning to end. Okay? God is a God who says, I'll pave a way of grace Get up on it. I'll put you there. And now, on that platform of grace, hear me and obey me. That doesn't change, ever. That's who our God is. But how does our Bible change? He had very specific rules and regulations to conform Israel. Ours are not the exact same. Do you understand? Our Bible is one, but that doesn't make everything equal and the same for everybody who's in from one end to the other. Okay. <clears throat> now, the second part of verse 4, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, is probably the most potent and succinct uh, summary of God who redeemed this people up to this point in the Bible. If you were reading up to this point in the Bible, this verse would really stand out to you. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's a very potent, short summary. This is what, um, how would, if you went up to Moses and you said, Moses, how would you summarize God thus Far toward his people. He would say, well, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's what he would say. Um, I call this, um, the summary of God, the blazing center. This is it. This is the furnace. This is the furnace for Israel. This is the blazing center for Israel. You take this God out, or you take this people away from this God, and they grow cold towards him. You put him in the center of this people. You keep these people close to this Lord, this one Lord, and they will be a hot people for him. Whether they are in the wilderness, they'll be hot. Whether they're in the promised land, they'll be hot. Take him out of the midst, in the wilderness, they'll be cold. In the promised land, they'll be cold. He is their only hope. Now there's two possible ideas and translations for the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Most of you, the NAS, the NIV, the ESV, and the New King James Version all have it the same. I think your version just says exactly what I've said. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The other translation possibility for this is the Lord, our God, is one Lord. It's a little different. The first one, this one, the one that's probably in your Bible, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, that stresses the uniqueness and the exclusivity of Yahweh, Okay, Israel's God. Yahweh is our God, and he is the one and only God. The second one, the Lord our God is one Lord, stresses more so the unity and the wholeness of Yahweh. He's not a schizophrenic being. He's not a little bit over here and a little bit over there. No, he's one being. And now the, the two ideas, the two translations, that, and the ideas that they're, they put forward, they overlap. They're not, there's not a huge, significant difference between them. The Lord is indeed one united being, but he is also the only true God for Israel. Um, McIntosh, in his commentary, I have to quote there for you, he says, all the grammatical possibilities of what you would do with this statement, they point in the same direction. They point to the uniqueness of Yahweh. they, They point to the supremacy of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So what's being stressed here? The unity of God is being stressed. He's one God. God's distance from all of the other invented deities of the nations is being stressed. He is not like all of those other multiple different kinds of gods out there. And Israel's strength lying not only in the worship of this Yahweh, but in the exclusive worship of this Yahweh. That's what's being stressed here in the statement. It's a powerful, potent statement. I read it, you read it, and we probably just go right over it, and we miss the significance of, of what's being said. Now, why is this so important to say this at this point? I want you to think with me for a minute. I want you to think with me behind Israel. Here they are in the wilderness. They're, they're on the plains of Moab. Moses is saying, all right, we've got one more thing we got to do before we go into the land. I need to give this all to you again. You're the next generation. All of your parents are gone. They're gone because they didn't listen. They didn't obey. Now, before we go in, here's the law one more time. Now, why is it significant at that point to say the Lord is our God, the Lord is one? Think behind. If they could all turn around and look at what happened in Egypt for 400 years and then coming out, the place God's people have been for the last 400 years was a nation that had many gods. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 20. That's right, I said Ezekiel 20. What does that have to do with Deuteronomy 6? If you never visit the dark continent of Ezekiel, you will miss out on stuff like this. Read your whole Bible. Read it again. And then read it again. And then read it again. Ezekiel 20. Watch this. This is what God found when He went into Egypt to get Israel. And Ezekiel's not telling us this. God is telling us this through Ezekiel. This is what God is saying He found when He went to Egypt, okay? Verse one of Ezekiel twenty. Oh, and I'll scroll to verse five. Sorry. No, no, no. Where am I going to start? Now let's go to verse 5. He's gathered together the elders of the people and he wants Ezekiel to say to them, here's what the Lord says. On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them saying, I am Yahweh, your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey which is the glory of all the lands. I said to them, when they were in Egypt, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. What did he find when he went there? Their their lives are cluttered with idols. That's right, Jacob. Jacob's life, his people, his sons, are cluttered with idols in Egypt. But they rebelled against me in verse 8. When did they rebel against him? He's saying in Egypt. When he went to get them, and he said, get rid of these idols. Now, we don't read that in Exodus. You can read that, and this part's not coming out. God is giving us some commentary on what he found when he was there. What did they do to him when he said that? He says, they rebelled against me, and they were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt and I resolved to pour out my wrath on them. When? In Egypt. God is saying, he's giving us some commentary on what was going on in Exodus. I resolved right then, God says, you're done. To accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But, verse 9, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, because he made a promise to them. And he is going to keep his promise that he made to them. In whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and I brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them he will live. I, also I gave them my sabbaths to be a sign between me and them. And that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They rebelled first in Egypt, cluttering their lives with the idols. They didn't listen to them, so they, he brings them out anyway because he's going to keep his promise. And in the wilderness, they did it again. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. And then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. Do you see a pattern developing here? But... I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey which is the glory of all the lands because they rejected my ordinances and as for my statutes they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths for their heart continually went after their idols. Yet my eyes spared them rather than destroying them. And I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. That is what lies behind them and even up to this point on the plains of Moab. Those are God's words. That's His testimony of what's been going on. Is it important for Moses to say to this people, "The Lord is our God. He's one. There's not many. He's one. You guys got to get this. And what do we Do you remember from Joshua 24 guys, when we were, last time we were together? What did Joshua say to them? He brought them into the land. He got them. They're all pretty much portioned out in the land. What is he saying to them? He gathers them together at Shechem, important place in the history of Israel. What does he say to them? They're in the land. Put away your gods. So he's, they still have their gods in their tents. When Moses is saying this on the plains of Moab, is it important to say this at this point to Israel? yes. It's the only thing Moses can say to these guys at this point. It's the only thing. And you know what? My heart's not any different than Israel's, and neither is yours. We need the grace of God in our lives to separate us from our idols. And the only way that happens for us is through the blood of Jesus Christ. I will not say no to my idols apart from God's grace powerfully circumcising my heart in Christ yours, giving a new heart. We can't look at Israel and go, you knuckleheads. You you know what the Pharisees did? Oh, if we'd been alive back then, we wouldn't have rebelled again. No, you and I, if we were there, we'd be feeling guilty right now at Moses' words because we know that under our pillow, in our tent is an idol. So that's just behind them. What's in front of them They're on the verge of Palestine, the the promised land. And there are seven nations. They're mightier than they. What's in front of them? The place God's people are about to go is full of Baals. God's lords. So get this. He's saying Israel's blazing center, Yahweh, could not be more distinct and unlike the The gods of the people that are in front of them. You have one God. He's our God. He's not their gods. He's our God. No God anywhere had come into a nation like Egypt and separated out one nation away from another nation by pouring out judgment and wrath on the host nation. No God had ever done that. And yet they came out and they go into the promised land and they get portioned out and Joshua says, Put away the idols. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6. Everywhere Egypt or Israel is standing. They can turn around, they can look back at Egypt, God's everywhere. They look in front of them, God's everywhere. They go in their own tents, God's everywhere. And here's Moses going, The Lord is our God. He's one. Are you listening, Israel? Will you hear him with the intent to obey? That's why this is an important statement at this point. And I tell you what. Verse 4 is very short. I forget, I think not like maybe six Hebrew words, something like that. It's rich. We haven't even looked at verse five. So the air closest to the output of the furnace is the hottest air, right? And if Israel will stay near to her blazing center, there's hope for her and her commitment in the covenant with God. There's hope that that her commitment will stay warm. So then, at that point, what is the first thing on God's mind for this people? What's the first thing on God's mind? It's love. And that takes us to discipline one, the heart, in our notes. Verse five and six, you shall love. I'm it, Israel. I'm it for you. There's no other God. I'm the only one. I'm the only one of the kind. Or I, I'm not different kinds of gods. I'm one God. I'm unique and I am yours. Here's what's on my mind for you, Israel. Love me. Love me. Love me. And not just any kind of love, but love me with all your heart, With all your soul and with all your might. Love that consumes you. That's what I want from you. Listen, guys, that is totally and completely unique. Completely unique. The gods of Egypt never required their devotees to love them. The gods of the Amorites and of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Philistines never communicated such a request to their followers. And in fact, no ruler ever has said to his people, here's what's on my mind first and foremost from you as I rule you, love me. No, let's just do what I say. Recognize my authority. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, he says, did ever any prince make a law that his subjects should love him? Yet such is the condescension of the divine grace that... Uh, This is made the first and great commandment of God's law. It's that we love him. And that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. Now what is meant here in verse 5 by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength or your mind. What What is meant here? Let me tell you what God is not doing here. When you see a list of heart, soul, mind, and strength. That kind of a thing. Here's what he's not doing. He's not sending us to to go do a splicing analysis of man. He's not sending us to go splice man up. Israel, and we have this in our command from Christ. We we are not called to go look over here and find our hearts. Where, where's my heart? Oh, it's over here. It's this piece of me over here. Now make sure you gather all of that up and love God with all of that, and then with what? All oh, my soul. Oh my goodness, okay, I'll, I'll leave that here and I'll go run over here to this place. Where's my soul? Oh, here it is. Do I have all of it? Now gather up all of my soul and love God with that. So i got to love God with all of that and I've got to love God with all of this and then my strength. Oh, i got to go run over here and i got to find all of my strength and gather it all up and make sure it's loving God. That is not what God is doing. He's not sending you to go splice your life up and find all of the pieces of it. That's not what he's doing at all. Rather, what he's trying to do, what he's actually doing is the opposite of that. To not divide yourself up, he's saying, let me summarize you in, in, in several different ways. You are heart. With all that you are as heart, love me. You are soul. With all that you are as soul, love me. You know what you are? Your strength. With all that you are as strength, love me. You see, he's not splicing us up. He's trying to gather us up into one so that we see what we are. This is an all-consuming love. We're not to just be consumed with this kind of love. This love is to consume us. All that we are. Why? Because if you get the heart of man, you've got the man. If you get the soul of man, you've got the man. What do you mean by strength? I got a quote from Macintosh in his commentary. Here's what the idea of strength is or might it's not so much a person's physical power as his intensity so what is being said here God wants earnestness in a person's love he does not merely uh, he he desires not merely that we possess a faith or you could say possess a love for God but that our faith or that our love should possess us you get it? Now here's what I want, if if there's anything that I could do, um, well not anything, but this would be at the top, one of the top things on the list of what I would want to do. I would want to change Christians' minds and understanding about Mosaic Law on on multiple fronts. What I'd want them to understand in in, in the ways in which um, it is not what we live under as our regulation I want people to rightly understand that. But I also, I would want people to change the way that they think about Mosaic Law in the Old Testament. Because let me ask you this. When you normally think of Mosaic Law, because we're buried right in the middle of it in Deuteronomy 6. When you think of Mosaic Law, is the first thing that comes to your mind love for God? It is what's on God's mind first. You see, we've got, we, I don't know if there's voices in our cult, Christian evangelical culture that try to pit law against grace and law against God's love. And God was stern and, man, he was tough with Israel. But man, is he gracious to us in Jesus Christ? You're kidding me, really? That person who thinks that has not read their Bible carefully. We, we haven't even looked through two whole verses yet. And the thing that we find is this God, who is the only God of Israel, says, here's the first thing on my mind. Here's my first command I'm going to give to you. You ready? Love me. Do you see what I've done for you? Do you see who I've been? Love me. Please.
1: with popping my head. How would you answer? obviously when Christ comes, you see a lot of people Yeah. Because I understand what you're saying. I've been all over the map on when I first became a believer. God, this is so stupid. Why don't they get get it? And then now, when when we're reading through the Old Testament, we've kind of of stuck on some of those things where I see, man, do we deserve, but Mm -hmm. you don't see too many people saved through the Old Testament.
0: Yeah. Well, Number one, I, w- I would want to probably test that statement a little bit. I wouldn't want to just accept that premise and let them establish where the conversation is going to take place. And 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 what I mean by that is <clears throat> not very many people in the Old Testament were saved. If you just go, oh, yeah, well, then you step onto that platform and you, that's where the conversation has to take place. Number one, you just assume that that's true. Okay. Um, and what I would want to say is Let's, let's go back And let's, let's just make sure that's right Okay? Let's just make sure Now, did a whole generation fall in the wilderness? Yes But that does not mean that God was not loving or gracious to them He was His intent with His love and His grace in redeeming them out of Egypt um, Did not mean that every soul that came out Was going to be redeemed in the sense of what we understand In Jesus Christ through the the blood of a sacrifice substituting his place and yet what God is showing us is that he was a God of grace he was a God of kindness towards them and even if 5,000 only were the ones who believed that does not diminish his love or his grace at all Um, Elijah felt pretty much like in Israel I'm in, there's nobody left he took that position God, there's not very many. And God had to correct them. Now, there's 5,000. Now, 5,000 compared to the total? Well, let's, let's just look at it the way God does it. And maybe we need to be more thoughtful about how many people are getting saved today. You set up a very easy believism gospel, and I'll tell you what, everybody gets saved. Now, look at all of them. Really? I, we just—I think we just need to be careful about that, you know. And and uh, if I could encourage you guys to do anything, it would be to not not drop kick thoughts like that in your head and just go, "I'm not going to think that anymore." But when you come to your Bible, just set it over here and say, "Now God, take instruct me again. Instruct me again. It, how should I think about that? Should I? What's true about that? And what needs to be refined about statements like that and, and things like that." So I, I would not. I'm not saying by God being a God of love and a God of grace, I am not saying that He saved most of them. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is He's a God of love and He's a God of grace because that's what He reveals Himself to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, um, I would just think about it. Wait, any follow-up on that or?
1: Um, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, right, I mean, obviously we see that all through Scripture. Um, his love, and His grace. The rain falling just you know, as We see that all through Scripture. I think I just wrestle with the fact that um, maybe I'm wrong here again. But I look at the old covenant, the Mosaic
0: Law. Was it meant to save them? It wasn't. You know why? Because it is. It is a what's called a subsidiary covenant. It's a covenant that is underneath a bigger one, the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant spans from. Genesis 12, all the way through the end of your Bible. The New Covenant fits way down here. I'm going to go back to the left to right. So it's Genesis 12, and it goes all this way. The New Covenant is over here. It, it wasn't in effect all the way back there. But it represents itself under the Abrahamic covenant and brings out a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in ways that uh, the Abrahamic covenant needed and desired and God intended. Mosaic covenant is underneath. The Abrahamic covenant. And, the, and, and Paul makes this point all the way that God has always been a God of faith. You must believe him and the man who believes him is credited in his righteousness. Now, Mosaic covenant was not given to say, if you obey my words, you will be saved with me. No, because even before that, to be saved by him required to substitute sacrifice in your place and blood to be shed And trust me that that's what I'm calling you towards. And so Mosaic law and Mosaic covenant comes underneath that. It it wasn't intended to run the whole course and regulate everybody. It was given to a specific people that God pulled out of Egypt. He didn't pull all of the nations out of Egypt and regulate them and say, this is my desire for all of the world. He says, this is my desire for Israel. Come into the land and live there. And you know what I'll do? I will... I will bring the nations to you. I will bring kings and people from all over the world to you to come see. You. We talked about this. This law Mosaic Covenant is stationary. It required them to be in the land. It required them to have a tent. It required them to have a, a temple. It required them to have priests who lived out in certain places. It required cities of refuge. It required laws that specifically designed for the way and the crops that could only grow in Palestine. That won't work on Hawaii. Okay? So it's for this people, and I'll draw the world to you. That covenant is huge. It's important. Israel took that covenant, and they abused it. So that when you get to Jesus' day, they have turned the whole thing into, uh, whoa, church gets formed? Hey, we got to have these Gentiles. If they're going to believe, they got to keep the law of Moses. Because they had elevated it to a place that God never intended it to be. They're using it as a means to be acceptable to God. And that was never the case. Paul makes points like this all the time. Um, And so now, in the new covenant that has come, uh, Jesus, we're going to talk about this in a moment, he actually, if he's going to form a new kind of people that are not going to be stationary, but are going to be what? Missionary. He needs to be able to have a set of regulations that allow the people to be missionary across the globe. Mosaic law can't do that. It's not intended to do that. And so, Ephesians 2, verse 15 and 16, he, and this is the word Paul uses, abolished the enmity. What is the enmity? It's the law, it's got commandments, it's got ordinances. It has to be set away because that law does not allow you to form a missionary people of nations and, and, and believing Jews, too. It doesn't allow you to. You have to set that subsidiary, and in setting it aside, you haven't set aside Abraham. covenant, <clears throat> nothing's changed there. But you have to set aside that regulation for Israel because what God is about to do in Jesus Christ. Is to take his believers and scatter them to the world. Not say to the world, "Hey, everybody, come here." That phase is done. We're in a new phase, to the ends of the earth. And and Jesus is very careful. And, and when, whenever you say that, you know, Mosaic law is done. We're gonna. You, you you're you're licentious. You are about free grace. You're about free grace. You can do anything you want. You don't have to live a holy life. Really? Is that what Jesus says? The way to keep believers in Jesus Christ holy is we have to hang on to pieces of Mosaic Law. Is that what you're saying? No, we don't. Jesus, don't worry. He didn't forget that you still need to be holy. He's got regulations for you. Some of them are exactly the same as what were under Mosaic Law. Some of them are. And some of them are completely different. Now you can actually be holy and eat fish, eat snails, eat clams. You can be holy and do that. If you think that you need to hang on to Mosaic Law, you're going to be actually breaking Mosaic Law and you're going to be unholy and you're going to be morally culpable for that dietary law. Since we're on a tangent and down a rabbit trail, <laughs> let's just pitch our own little tent here for a moment. Okay? There is no moral law civil law, and ceremonial. Now, you could look at that and say, well, certainly there are some regulations in that that are, are specifically designed for ceremony, worship. Certainly, I, anybody could make that observation. But nowhere in the Old Testament does Moses say, here's what the moral law is. Here's where I'm concerned morally. That comes But here's where I'm concerned ceremonially. And here's where I'm concerned, simply. Let me ask you this. If in the wilderness, at the foot of the mountain, Moses came down and he saw a bunch of people at a sushi bar in Israel, would there be a moral problem with that dietary law? Yeah. What part of Mosaic law is not moral? Which part of Mosaic Law did not have moral consequences? All of it. The civil too. A man fled to your city of refuge and you were like, we don't want this guy. You just turn him over to the family who's chasing him and you don't follow the civil law that's been given. That city is morally culpable before God. So there's not moral civil ceremonial. I understand it might be helpful at points to try to describe the law that way, but Moses never speaks of Mosaic Law that way. Jesus never speaks of Mosaic Law that way. Paul never speaks of Mosaic Law that way because the Bible doesn't represent it that way. And so I understand if you say Mosaic Law is done, you make people feel a little uncertain about what's going to happen to the holiness of God's people. Well, were the people unholy before God made Mosaic Law? Go to to Genesis 26, verse 5. Genesis 26 is a a section of scripture after (coughs) Abraham. (coughs) God is actually talking to Isaac. (coughs) And he's exhorting Isaac to do the same thing that he exhorted Abraham to do. Be fruitful, multiply, I'm going to give you this land. Now notice what he says in in Genesis 26.5. He's describing Abraham. Because Abraham obeyed me. He kept my... Now look at this list. He kept my charge. He kept my commandments. He kept my statutes. And he kept my laws. Which ones? It's not Mosaic law. God was concerned about Abraham's holiness of life being regulated. And he gave him, uh, let's see, charges and commandments and statutes and laws. God never leaves His people that He has called to Himself by faith through the sacrifice of a substitute. He never leaves them without commands to shape their lives. Never. Mosaic Law is not the first time God did this. God did this with Noah. God did this with Adam and Eve outside the garden. Okay? And when He gets to Mosaic Law, man, this is the hugest combination of regulations man has ever seen up to this point is massive. Massive. Six hundred and ten laws? I think Israel looked at and summarized it. You get to the New Testament and you cut those off. What's God gonna do? The same thing he's always done. He's gonna give those people that he called to himself through Jesus Christ laws. Paul calls it the law of Christ. (laughs) James calls it the law of liberty. We have laws. Don't worry. We're not going to be less holy because Messiah has come and sacrificed himself. Messiah doesn't need to keep dragging forward some parts of Mosaic law so that his people will be holy. He abolished it. And he gave them Ephesians chapter 4 through 6. Don't lie. Speak the truth. Don't be angry in unrighteous anger. Speak only words that are edified. Don't steal. Imitate me. Love your wives. Submit to your husbands. You these are the laws that are given in Christ. Because of what he's done. We're not unregulated people. Okay? God hasn't changed at all. But his regulations that he collects together to give to his people change all the time in the Bible. Rick
2: swinging the Pentagon so far away from, from you know, the restated law by Christ mistakes.
0: What, what do you mean? They're swinging away from it?
2: Like if you bring up obedience ah. to a person uh, typically they will a
0: solution
2: to Christ. Whereas
0: <clears throat> be, I would say they're reflecting the same thing that has always plagued man what did, um, what did Samuel say to Saul to obey is better than sacrifice he wanted to go through ceremony and be content with just I'm a worshipper I'm a worshipper sacrifice, but you're not obeying me which proves that you don't understand what my sacrifice did so your sacrifice means nothing. Obedience has always been the problem of a rebellious and treacherous people. Always been. In every generation. And so the reason they're swinging, you know, even in our day, is because that's what happens in every generation. They swing. Don't put obedience in front of it. Now, what, what do we have to do? What, what's, what's our responsibility with our kids and with people that we... We need to make sure that we help people rightly understand where obedience fits which is going to lead us right back here to Deuteronomy. So let's come back to that, and let's see where all of this fits <coughs> in this, okay? I'll see if I can even find out where we were. Sorry, thank you for letting me go down that road. Oh, thanks, man. That's very kind of you. I don't care what Josh says about you. <laughs> <coughs> can I get you
1: <laughs>
0: No, I've already had like five, so... <laughs> All right. When you think of Mosaic Law, guys, I want you to think of love for God. Not because we're under Mosaic Law or that we need to love God through Mosaic Law, but I want you to, when you read your Old Testament, I don't want you to conclude because you see a whole list of rules that you don't forget the first rule. Don't forget the greatest rule. Love God. That says a lot about our God. Okay. So why was Israel in trouble with God? Let, let me let me make this point to you. God's people, Israel, they were not guilty before God first and foremost because they broke dietary laws, because they didn't sacrifice right, they didn't pay attention to their social laws, or even because they broke the 10 commandments. That's not why they were primarily guilty before God. Why are they primarily guilty before God? They did not what? They didn't love God. They didn't love God. And because they didn't love God, they were unconcerned with, and they were slow to obey. When you love, guess what you'll do? You'll obey. You to, here's the closest in our culture that we understand about a covenant setting and love and, and law. The closest contemporary covenant idea in our minds is probably the covenant of marriage. Okay? You know, the, you know what the marriage covenant is full of? I stand there, and at one point in the marriage, I look at the man, and I say, Will you? And 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 you know what he says every single time? I will. I will. Yes, 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 yes to it all. do anything. And I turn to her. Same thing. And you know what she says? I'll do it all. Why? Why will they do it? Because they love each other. They are full of love for one another. They're full of love for one another. That's why they'll do anything. Let's not forget that. That's our Bible, guys. That's our Bible. That's the old covenant and the new covenant. Okay? But they are different in ways too, but they're similar in that way. Okay? All right, this command from God to love, you know what it does? It reflects and reveals his desire for his people's attitude toward him. Here comes a whole bunch of people loving God into the Promised Land. The nations would have looked at them and said, We've never invented a God like that. That never crossed our mind to invent a God like that. That God of that people would have stood out to be completely unique. And by the way, just a reminder, what is this? Do you know um, where the first mention of love in the Bible is? We're in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Is that the first place? Anybody got an idea? Can you guess? At least in Leviticus, we know it's there. Okay, good. So we got to go before Leviticus. Say what? Genesis what? No. A little too, too early. Even before Exodus 20. It's in Genesis. The first time God mentions love is Genesis 22. And Abraham has Isaac bound up on the altar. He's got the knife raised in the air. And the angel says, Stop! Now I know that you love me. Because you'd do anything I ask you. Mosaic Law did not invent love for God. God was interested in love way before Mosaic Law. And if Mosaic Law goes away, don't worry. He hasn't changed. He's still interested in love. Go to John 14. Go to John 14. Do
1: you
0: hear me? Okay, thank you for... Letting, I'll have to double-check that because I remember I checked the NAS on that. We'll double-check that. John 14, 21. We know what Jesus said. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Love is what it's all about. Macintosh just... Comment on John fourteen twenty one, Jesus wouldn't in, later insist on love. His disciples could hardly have missed the point of this statement in which Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give Yahweh. I mean, you've got to think about this. Here's a rabbi. There's tons of rabbis in Israel. Not one of them said to his disciples, Love me. If you, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because a rabbi recognized, I'm just not in that place to be able to say that to people. Except when God himself becomes rabbi, they would have been shocked to hear this. This is, this is, this is a man, he's more than a man. Who is this? Matthew 22 says, "If you, uh, you shall love the, Here's Jesus repeating the command, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If anyone does not love Christ, he is accursed. Ephesians 6:24 ends with love, with an incorruptible love. And do you remember John 21, verses 15 to 17? You remember Peter? Oh, love Peter. It's a great example of, he's the mirror for us. Okay? We look at Peter and we see us. Here's, here's the big man on campus, the night of Jesus' betrayal. Oh, all the others will fall <coughs> away, but not me. I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to go to death with you. Hey, we got some swords. Will these work? I'm with you. We're going to fight to the end. Get out in the garden. Fall asleep. Take a little nap. I'm going praying. And here come the bad guys. I'll take that sword out. And I'm a fisherman. Watch me do this. Whap! There goes an ear. How do you cut an ear off? That had to be a sloppy swing. Whoosh! <laughs> That guy ran away and wept bitterly. In John 21, Jesus has come back to him. He's looking for him. Calls him from the boat. He comes to the land and they go for a little walk. And Jesus says something very interesting to Peter at that point. Peter, you made some big promises to me. You broke them. You didn't keep your word. Peter, are you going to stop being foolish now? Is that what he said to him? Will you promise and will you resolve to do better? Is that what he said to him? Will you get some accountability, man? What did he say to him? Why did he say that to him? Because that's God's first desire and first concern always. Love me. And he's reminding him of that. Deuteronomy 6, again, God's people here who are warmed by the blazing center discover that God has actually provided for them a means by which their comprehensive love for God was to be kept up. He provided something for them that helped them maintain their love for God, that promoted their love for God, that nurtured their love for God so that their love for him would not undergo decay. It's in verse 6. These words, which I'm commanding you today, they shall be on your Remember, that's where I called you to love me from. So I have something for your heart, for who you are at the heart level. It's my words. Put my words there. Where your love for me is supposed to be. So you put those words and you advance them into your heart. So God's intent back then, it's still the same in Christ. It's love for God must move us toward God's word in order to bring it to the heart of the believer. This is where God has not changed. A quote from Matthew Henry. God's words must be laid up on our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them, and thereby giving the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and impression of those words. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart, For those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts, both as an evidence of that love and an effect of that love, and as a means to preserve and increase it. He that loves God loves his Bible. I love that. You love God? Then you love his word. And that is what discipline one is all about. Isn't it? So get this, the spiritual leader in the church is someone who constantly brings his heart to the word of God so that God might graciously reveal himself through those words, right? So then the spiritual leader's love for God, it gets fanned into a big old flame, and it turns the spiritual leader back again, even to the words, to be able to know, how should I express this love that I have for God? Oh, he's got commandments for me. What are they? Tell me what. I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Yes, I'm in. I'll do it. And every Christian is called to live this way, but especially spiritual leaders, ministry leaders, men who are going to step up in the church and lead because God wants them to be the, the example to the rest of how to live this way. And guys, you have to aspire to this. You have to. You cannot be satisfied to, I don't know, just be average. You can't. You must be this because this is what God calls every man to be. Be it. Aspire to it by God's grace. Seek His face for dependence. The person cannot
2: stay where they are. Never. Yeah. They're either going to
1: become closer, more affectionate, or they're going to wander away.
0: Yeah. The way that I, the illustration that fits in my mind with that is the what God has us in is He has us swimming upstream in Christ. The only way that you advance in love is by depending greatly on his grace and his strength in the gospel and disciplining yourself and you put another arm out in front of you and you stroke and you stroke and you depend on him for strength to go and you inch your way forward and you grow and you grow and And if you stop, you are swept back. Because your fallenness in you, indwelling sin in you, doesn't know to do anything else except that. Shepherd your heart with the word of God. To meet with God, discipline yourself for this. You will not go forward if you stop. We're ready to make the transition now in Deuteronomy 6. We're ready to make the transition from the heart to the home. But before we do that, I need to... um, uh, humbly ask for uh, or make clarity that the reference I made in Genesis 22 was, um, was completely incorrect. It is the first place that love is used, but it's in verse 2. Take now your son, your only son whom you love. And I, as Eric was telling me this, this is one of those examples of when you, three or four years ago, make notes that you teach from and you have it in there the first time the way that it, it is, and then the next year when you revise your notes, and you go, oh yeah, Genesis 22, and you just write down Genesis 22, and you don't put the details of it, what it says, and you don't go back and look at it again, um, I made major assumptions that were completely incorrect. It does say now I know that you fear me. That's It's a complete misuse of what it was, and it's just carelessness on my part, so I, I want to ask for your forgiveness for that with God's word and All right. Well any of you who are like that and want to be under Mosaic Law, you just go. The rest of us are under grace. Just kidding. But I'm sorry for that guys. That was that was not that's a good example of hovering over a passage you think you remember what it says and it doesn't say that. And... You got to be careful. I need to be careful. So. so now I, I would I, I would need to go back and look at my original, um, see what was triggering my original thought. My my thought may have morphed into a justification for what I was saying that is pro- that was proof of his love. And I'm going to retract that whole statement on Genesis 22 because I'm not sure that's what that passage is saying. Um, that what well, we do know that passage is saying is "Now I know you fear me, um, but he was expressing love. the first mention of love was, was toward Isaac, so that as an example was not a good example at all it didn 't correlate at all with the point I was trying to make so i 'm taking it all back.
2: So can I- Yeah. yeah,
0: Yeah. that's great. The, the question is between fear and love. God seems to use them synonymously, but they don't seem to be that way. The reason for that is not because of the Bible's language for fear and love. The reason for that is in our language and our meaning in our day for love and fear. In our day and in our vocabulary and the way that we use fear and mean fear, fear is mutually exclusive from love. They cannot coexist in our day. Not in the Bible, but in our set of language and in our communication, love for somebody means that you are not afraid of them. Or if you are afraid of somebody, how can you love them? See, that, that's our language, that's our meaning that we associate with those words. In God, this is where it's so important. You've got to get out of your culture and you've got to get out of your meanings and you've got to come into God's words and His meaning and let His word say what it says. And His word says that it is possible simultaneously, inseparably, to love God and to fear Him. That's what He says. So we've got to make our words accommodate that. Not that drunk.
2: I, I think of fear as an emotion, Why say say emotion, but this is again our cultural language. But I think of fear as that emotion that is uh, overwhelming. Like, uh, when you're a little kid and you go home to your house and you know nobody's in the house and you can't stay away.
0: And, and the, the the word fear, even in the Bible, takes on each context specific meaning. So that when you get to First John, John will say, "Perfect love casts out." Well, wait a minute. Which is it? Well, what kind of fear is he talking about in First John? In First
1: John,
0: what is it? Is that what is this? But um, so you have to let each context in whatever passage you're in determine what the word fear means, and there is a fear that is mutually exclusive from love, and that is, the passage that confirms that is the one in First John. i do not, I can't remember what passage it is, but um, specifically. But there are other times, like you said, you know, Tom, God expects both of them. And so where the accommodation has to be made is we don't want to change what God's word says to make it fit in our minds. We want to change our minds and the way that we use words to make it fit God's, okay? All right, let's move on. Let's take a look. Um, In verses seven to nine. In Israel, these words could not just stay on the man's heart, his own individual personal heart. They could not just stay there. Those words had to advance beyond the man. They had to advance beyond the husband. They had to advance beyond the father into his home, to his wife and his kids and slaves if he had them. And he was, in verse 7, to teach them diligently to his sons. Now, teach them diligently, it's a very interesting uh, expression, very flowerful descriptive in in, uh, Hebrew two quotes there for you from um, Matthew Henry and from Eugene Merrill. Frequently, what does it mean to teach them diligently? It meant frequently repeat these things to them. Trying all ways of instilling them into their minds, making them pierce into their hearts as in the sharpening of a knife. It is first turned on this side and then on this side. Back and forth. Over and over. Over and and over. Teach them over and over. Make the instrument sharp so that it can do what it needs to do in the heart, in the life of the one that you're teaching it to. It's that idea of sharpening a knife. The image is also used as that of an engraver of a monument, who takes a hammer and a chisel in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of solid a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of doing it over and over and keeping working, keep hammering at it, keep hitting it. That's a daunting task indeed. But once done, how long is the message there? As long as that rock stands. So that's the idea of that kind of diligence. It's not like, hey, once in a while you can do this with your family, and it's all good, Israel. That's not what he's saying. He said you've got to do this over and over and over and over. So then how would we summarize this part so far? Here's what I would say. God's intent for Israel was that they were to come near and come into direct contact with their blazing center, who is God, right? And in and through his words, come into contact with him. Those words would then enable uh, him to pour forth heated love back to God. It would help direct his love for God. And then those precious words that he has been putting upon his own heart, he takes those words and he pushes them into everybody else's life that he lives with. Teach them diligently to your sons. Do you understand what God's intent is for Israel? What kind of a nation would that have been in Palestine? What kind of a nation would that have been as the spectator nations around it are are looking in on that land? That would have been a very, very unique people. He also says in verse 7: When you um, sit, you shall talk of them, when you sit in your house, and when you'll walk by the way. So Israel was upon any occasion, within the home, they're sitting, outside of the home, they're walking. They were, they were to impress the word of God on their kids. Those who were in their home, um, whatever occasions for inactivity were going on, you just sitting around hanging out, or if you were in activity, walking, you were to make this whole point known. You were to view anything you were doing as not, no, no, son, now's not the time to, to talk about the word. This, just, this isn't a good time. No, whatever you were doing, whatever you weren't doing, it was always the right time to talk about the word of God with your kids. When you lie down and when you rise up, when do you lie down? At the end of the day, which is when the day began for the Hebrew mind. When do you rise up? In the morning. The book ends on your day. The the beginning parts of your day were to be characterized by the, the impressing of the Word of God upon the heart and the mind of those who are in the home. And that's not even enough. But, God could have said, we would have thought, you know, it would have been good enough just to make everybody responsible for you put the word of God on your own heart, shepherd your own heart. Kids, you do it. Dad's going to do it for himself. Son, you do it for you. Wife, you do it. Uh, Uncle, slave, you all do it. You all just be personally responsible for doing that. Were they supposed to do that? Yes. We would have thought that might have been enough, but that's not enough. He says, men, you have a special responsibility. Push it everywhere. Advance it into your home but that's not enough everywhere you go whatever you're doing whatever you're not doing you're tired dead dog tired going to bed getting up um, do it then first thing on your conscious mind the last thing on your conscious mind my words we would have thought that might be enough but that's not enough he says you shall bind them verse 8 as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead what is this they were to go even further most commentators believe um, that this was to be taken figuratively and somehow even if they did do this literally and we know that they did do this literally that it was okay as long as their heart motive was right many commentators (coughs) believe that what they did is they had tassels on the ends of their garments on on the ends of their sleeves that reminded them of the commands and we know they made phylacteries little boxes Leather boxes that had the word of God on it and it hung literally right between the eyes. Okay? So here you are in a very um, agricultural society, hard work society, and you're getting ready to do work and you're like, man, these things are in my way. Oh yeah, God's word. I'm putting my hand to work. I'm going to reap. I'm going to make something. I'm going to... I'm going to feed my child. The word of God is in the way. Everywhere I look, this thing just keeps getting in the way. What? Is, oh, it's God's word. I'm looking at my world through God's word. It was to be worn on the person, the body of the Israelite. Macintosh and Spurgeon caught the heart that was behind this command, I think. Look at these two quotes. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites. They were to serve as constraints or guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. So, you—if you were to—if you were going to use your hand in a way that was going to be, oh, now can't use my hand that way. used to guide my hand. You're going to think a thought that see somebody and there's anger, there's unforgiveness, there's bitterness in. It. What's that in my See, the service checks upon what they saw and what they did with their hands. The purpose of using such symbolism, Macintosh says, was to connect God's law with the everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority and his word. Spurgeon said, Thou shalt see by them, thou shalt see with them, thou shalt see through them. Verse 9. That's not enough. Write them on the doorposts of your house. Write them on your gates. And again, most commentators think that this was to be taken figuratively. I don't know why. I don't know what would be wrong with doing this. But basically the principle was to be spiritually caught and brought into every sphere of life, right? I mean, what's the whole point here? See the quote from Merrill? The form of the commandment is in any case most significant. After ordering that the covenant commandments be worn on the person of the faithful Israelite, Moses expanded the sphere of the covenant claim to the house and then even to the village. In this manner, the person of his entire family and community became identified as the people of the Lord whose word was everywhere. Get this. If it's on the doorposts of your house and you're going out of your house, what's that around the... Oh, I'm I'm about to head out into my property, and I gotta think about the Word of God. I'm now gonna walk through my gate, out my property, into my community, outside of my house, what's on my mind? I, I the, the Word of God, I got I can't enter into the world without leave God's Word behind. Here's the reminder, right at my gate. You've been out working all day, and you're coming home, and you're tired, and you're just, ah, that was a tough day, you're gonna walk through the gate, what better be on your mind? What's going to greet you there? The Word of God. What's going to come and greet you at the door before you kiss your wife, if you're an Israelite, and greet your children? The Word of God. What an amazing nation this should have been. Yeah?
2: What do you think it would have looked like? I mean, for us, I mean, I guess I would not it like a verse. What would
1: that
0: looked like? Yeah, I think it would have probably look something like what the Ten Commandments probably look like. Ten words?
2: Etched
0: on wooden posts, etched on a rock. You know, six, words, six, words. six it was something like that. It wouldn't <laughs> Hebrew's that way. Hebrew you don't have to write a whole lot to say a whole bunch. Um, yeah, and I, I want to be clear this is for Israel. If you want to put a sign up in, or, you know, a, a, a verse up on your wall, do it. But don't justify this for that. Okay? Now, we looked last time at um, this New Testament teaching on the importance of the home and the mission. Because we, we, we've dug. now what have we done here, guys? I want you to think about this. As Christians, if you're going to be in Mosaic Law or in the Old Testament anywhere, you better jump in both feet into the, con- the the context and into the setting of there. You have to get their pebbles stuck in your sandals. You've got to feel it. You've got to live there. You've got to get there. That will not hurt you to do that. And that's what we did. We jumped deep inside Israel in the wilderness, but that's not where we live. We have further revelation. Now, let's remind ourselves of some things that we looked at last week in the New Testament. Okay? And this is where um, we look. We let this sermon, we let this message speak what it said. Now, the sermon or the message needs to say more than that because the sermon has to keep in mind that more revelation has come. So what do we need to remind ourselves of? Do you remember in um, Acts 10, Acts 16, twice, Cornelius, Lydia, and the Philippian jailer? You remember all of these? Each one, God got one of them and that one made a huge what? Huge impact on the whole household. So God will come into a household primarily through one man or one person and then get the household. This is what he does. We saw this to be the case as the church was expanding. Okay, One person's interaction with the gospel makes a profound impact on the entire household. Um, these narratives give no indication of a leapfrog pattern or effect, um, skipping over the whole house, but rather getting the whole house, but through one. Do you remember this? Let's go back to the, the attack on the home. I want you to go to 2 Timothy 3. Again, let's look at this real quick. In Titus 1, we're just going to read these passages. I want this to be impressed upon your mind. Verse 6. 2 Timothy 3, verse 6 and 7. If you look at the end of verse 5, avoid such men as these, and he just described them in verses 2 to 5. So avoid such men as these. Verse 6, for among them, among these kinds of men, are those who enter into households and they captivate weak women weighed down with sins, women who are led on by various impulses, women who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And again, what we said last time is, where are the men? Here's women who sin, not a surprise, we do that, every one of us does that, but they don't know what to do with their sin. Their sin, there's no relief from their sin, they're buried underneath, they're burdened by it. There are women who are led on by various impulses and desires that they have, they're just, their impulses and their desires just seem to be running rampant, even sovereign over their lives. And they have a desire to learn, and they're learning stuff, maybe they're curious, maybe they're interested in what's faddish, But they're not able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, guys, God's heart has not changed. Where are the men? Be in your home. You have to understand the gospel well enough that you can free your wife from under the burden of her sin with the gospel. You can't fear the gospel, does it? But you bring it to her. You serve it to her. You help her to learn. You help her to be taught. Um, Titus chapter 1, verse 14. I'm sorry, Verse 10. There are many rebellious men. This comes right after the qualifications for elders who need to be able to hold fast the faithful word, verse 9, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That kind of man is necessary in the church. Why? Well, let me tell you why. There's many rebellious men out there, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced. Why? Why? because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not they should not teach for the sake of sort of gain. The household needs to be protected. Guys, you need to be a man who loves God. You see his word as a tool given to you by him to fan your love for him in a flame and to, to shape your love for him. And then you need to push that into your family and watch over your family because the devil would love to come and invade your house and lead your people in your house astray. And if you're not sharp, and if you don't know what the word of God says, they're vulnerable. You can't be that. You have to be a different kind of man. The family and the home, though, can become an obstacle to the gospel. We saw this last time as well. Um, Jesus made many different statements about, I, I'll follow you anywhere, but I need to go, uh, I need to go bury my dad first. He, he's not dead yet. See, I got this inheritance coming. See, and I I so when that happens, then I'll, I'll follow you. And Jesus said he, he's not willing to walk away from them, even the family is not worthy of me. So this is a, a good reminder by Messiah that his words and his gospel are even above our families. We can't make the mistake, guys, of seeing truthfully, rightfully how how high God puts the family up, the household. That's true. Don't push that down. Put it exactly where it needs to be. The danger is sometimes we, because we see God doing this with it, lifting it up, God stops here in his word, and we're excited and we just keep going. And we make God's, my family becomes even greater than it should be. And it's not greater. There are many things that are, the same level as my family, even greater, the gospel first and foremost. And so always keep the gospel above your family and bring it to your family. But what if your family won't follow it? What if they won't follow you? They won't follow you. And your family at that point will be divided by Christ, not by you, by Christ. did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. So which is true? Does he get the whole household through Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer or does he divide households? Which is it? Yes. He does both. Both are true. Equally so. So go after your family with the gospel, but you better as you do that, you better be mindful that your family can actually become an obstacle to the gospel if you're not careful leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel. Remember this? What does he say to the men, the husbands? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave, that's the cross, that's the gospel. So what is he assuming that husbands understand? The gospel. We need to know the gospel well. We need to examine it from as many different angles as we can to make sure that we really understand the, the the sacrifice of a substitute who shed his blood in the place of sinners who don't deserve it. And this is all done by grace because the more we understand that, the more we understand that, the more we love that, the more we grasp that, the more we're passionate for that, the better equipped we are to what with our life? Love. Love. So um, if you want to be married or looking forward to being married, uh, you better be a gospel-centered man. New Testament models of marriage, we saw Priscilla and Aquila, right? And these were primarily a family that were very concerned, a husband and wife that were very concerned with the mission of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And then God is even concerned that the ones who are going to lead ministry and shepherd ministry in his um, church, that they actually um, not ignore their household. They can't be men who are going to ignore their household. They're men that are actually going to be very concerned about their household. They're going to manage their own household well. They're going to stand over it, near it, by it, and watch their children. They're going to make sure that they, in their hearts, are a one-woman man. They're going to be very concerned about these kinds of things. Even deacons have the same qualification. Okay?
1: It's so critical to
2: know the biblical gospel. God is in a lot of things. It's different
0: Great it's
1: point.
2: love and grace, and it's an irresponsible. You no, there's there's the negative side of us that is not out there, and that's Genesis and, and three and, and you know, our fall, our we're all. In
0: Yeah, you need to make sure that um, – we, we don't live in a day where you can assume the gospel. And even if you mention to somebody, oh, I love the gospel, and they go, me too. You need to make sure that – well, we need to go even a little bit further. What do you mean by gospel? That's right. <coughs> you, you, you have, unfortunately, that's just where we live. You need to. You have to go further than that. Nick, did you have something? No, on? I'm Just yeah. didn't um, want to miss um, Okay. So you got to be gospel-centered men. You have to be men who are, are concerned to shepherd your household. That's what the Word of God says from the from the beginning to the end. That's Word of God doesn't change. Um. Next time when we get together, we're going to talk about. Um. I have I wanted to do it today, but we're not going to do it today because I want to make sure we get the last half hour here in small group. But next time together, I'll, I'll lead off with. Okay, I want to. I have a specific word to bring to you if you're single, if you're a single man. We talked about this a little bit. We kind of touch on it every time. You know, if you're a single guy, I want to make sure that you really, uh, we'll take just maybe five or ten minutes at the beginning of next time to really talk about uh, you single guys. And is should we be focusing on this? Is is this missing you because you're not married? You don't have a family? You just got roommates? I mean, you're just knucklehead roommates that you live with and they live with you. Uh, We're going to talk about that. And many of you are still at home too, which is great, a great opportunity. Um, to talk about that. So, alright, let's take a look at your homework for next time. You've got the green sheet, and, and this, is a, this is an important assignment. Um, it's front and back. Okay, there's room there for you, and front and back. Um, I want you to select three different passages in your Bible reading over the next two weeks. Okay? Just three. Whichever three you want. And I want you to do three things with each one of those three passages. Okay? Are you with me? The three things that I want you to do with each of the passages is the A, B, and C. That's why you see Passage number one, A, B, and C. Passage number two, A, B, and C. So you've got three different passages. Do three different things. What are the three different things? A, write a paragraph about what this passage reveals to you about the nature or the character of God. Read the passage to say, to look for... Who is, who is God in this? I don't want to miss the God who is revealing Himself to me through it. Write a paragraph on what it says about God. Okay? B. Write a paragraph about how your heart is interacting with God who is revealed there. One of the best ways to do this is just to write out a paragraph prayer to God about what you see about Him there. God, this is what I see about you. I praise you for being this. I'm so thankful that you are. I love you for this. You write him a paragraph prayer to him about what you see. Okay? C. Share what impact this passage from God's word is having on you with someone in your home. Write a paragraph about how that went. Okay? Disciplines one and two tangibly put into practice. Does this make sense? Is look, you don't even have to be a rocket scientist to get it, do you? It makes sense, doesn't it? I read God's word to meet with God. I was totally impacted by that. I talked to him about that. And now I gotta go talk to somebody in my house about that. Wow. Guys you don't have to this isn't this isn't hard stuff. It just just go do it. Okay this it hard. Because we're fallen and we're lazy and it's tough. But it's simple. All right. Do that three times. Talk about how you had to get a cold washcloth and put it on your wife's forehead to wake her up because she passed out because you did that. Do it with your kids. If you have kids, do it with your kids. Do it with your roommates. If you are a kid and you live in your home with your parents, do it with one of your siblings. Do it with your mom or your dad. Okay? Find somebody. If you live all alone, Invite somebody over into your house, cook them dinner, and do this with them. Okay?